Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. My name is Dewey Doval, and today I have the privilege of discussing a subject that is often overlooked and even disregarded in modern Christian circles. And that subject is none other than how the church should read the Song of Solomon. And to help us think through this issue at greater length, we have Trace Turner joining us for today's show. Trace, welcome to the Covenant Podcast, brother. It's great to see you on this blistery December morning. <laughs> Thanks, Dewey. It's a privilege to be here and glad to talk about this very uh, important subject. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, some of our listeners uh, may find it interesting that Trace was my roommate at the Masters University back in 2015. So speaking personally here, this is a very special opportunity to allow one of my dear friends to minister to all of us on today's show. I know it's going to be a blessing to those who take the time to listen. And uh, like myself, Trace has embarked on a very unique theological odyssey over the past seven years. Uh, one similarity we both have is we are no longer dispensationalists, though that is definitely the heritage that we were introduced to during our time at the Masters University and even before that. So Trace, um, since you're a first-time guest on the Covenant Podcast, perhaps you'd be willing to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, talk a little bit about how the Lord has worked in your life over the past several years, and maybe even touch on that theological odyssey that I just uh, mentioned in passing there. Sure. I would be happy uh, to do that. Uh, as far as my upbringing goes, I was raised in a believing home, uh, a home that uh, preached the gospel and uh, instructed me in the ways of the Lord from a very uh, young age. So uh, when I look back at my life, uh, it's hard to, to find a time when I did not know the Lord. I know there was a, a, a particular time when the Lord moved uh, toward me savingly by his grace. Um, but um, yeah, so I have I was raised, as uh, Dewey said, in a dispensational uh, home, uh, and so that kind of is why um, I'm very passionate about this subject on the Song of Solomon, uh, because I was taught to read it in a very different light that I will be presenting um, to uh, you today. And so I'm very grateful for my upbringing, though. I read the scriptures from a very young age, uh, attended the church uh, faithfully, and so the Lord worked uh, amazingly um sovereignly um as he as he does and so uh, that's that's my my upbringing um as far as uh, education uh, goes uh i um went to uh, the master's university uh with with dewey as he uh, mentioned and so i studied the uh, biblical languages um hebrew and greek i was uh, steeped in dispensational theology uh, going in and was uh, taught that even further um the literal understanding of scripture uh, to the T really and as a, a student a diligent student uh, I'd say one of one of the the better students uh, in uh, in my classes Old Testament studies uh, I was trying to understand the Old Testament the way that I was taught and so I was trying to understand it literally and um, that uh, brought some concerns to me and I brought uh, concerns to my uh, professor and others. Um, uh, this was after uh, Dewey um, left, um, and so it was 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 just me. I think I remember telling you uh, as you left to stay strong in your dispensationalism as you were uh, moving more towards a covenantal understanding of the scriptures. And so, man, those words uh, came back to bite me for sure. Uh, but the Lord used it, and uh, it was it wasn't until my uh, senior year of 
of, of college that I started uh, diving into apologetics. I started um, reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew and trying to see uh, the ways that, you know, my professors taught me to read it. And it was just coming to some problems, uh, especially regarding the kingdom of God. I was taught that the kingdom of God was, you know, not here yet and that we're, it will only come at the second coming of Christ. And so um, I would come across uh, sayings in Matthew chapter uh uh, 13 or, or 12, or I can't remember exactly that. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And I just couldn't reconcile that with my theology. And so that kind of sent me into a spiritual crisis of wanting to understand uh, the scriptures um, according to as, as they were being presented uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so um, I started um, kind of worrying. And so I figured if I'm wrong on this issue, what other issues am I wrong on? And so I pretty much, I had a full ride scholarship to the master's seminary at the time. And, uh, I did sign off on the doctrinal statement as I was still dispensational in my theology, but, um, before the going in uh, to my first semester there, I, um, really just locked myself in the room, uh, in a room all summer and studied. And by doing that, I became uh, covenantal in my understanding reformed. I was always, uh, um, a believer in the um, the, uh, the doctrines of grace, uh, God's sovereignty and salvation, and was able to share those things uh, with you. And we had great discussions on that. So I'm grateful for that. But I started getting reformed in other ways, uh, reformed in my eschatology, reformed in ecclesiology, and other things. So I'm grateful for the Lord's a work in my life. So I went to master seminary for about a year. I was on full ride scholarship, and I got my scholarship uh, taken away uh, because I wasn't able to um, sign off on the doctrinal statement as I'd had previously. And so I could still go to the seminary um, and uh, many people wanted me to. And I thought about doing that, but I really felt that the Lord was calling me elsewhere. And at, it was around that time in God's sovereign and sovereignty that he brought me to the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America and uh, really found a, a home with them um, as far as my eschatology and is um, my my new understanding of how to read uh, the scriptures and so um, I spent a year at the master seminary and then after that uh, I um, moved home with my parents for a while and trying to figure out what I was going to do and then I transferred over to re the reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in uh, Pittsburgh and so I have a, a master's in divinity from um, Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, which is our denomination's uh, seminary. And then my current uh, ministry uh, context uh, is I'm a pastor in State College, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and so I've been the pastor for a little bit over two years. Uh, now I was ordained uh, and installed in uh, 2020 uh, at the height of COVID. Uh, so moved my family from uh, Pittsburgh um, uh, to um to State College. And as far as my family goes, uh, I'm married uh, to my lovely wife, uh, Meg uh, Turner. Uh, and we have a little daughter named Isla Rosalie uh, Turner. She was born in uh, May, May 13th, uh, 2022. Uh, and actually, uh, we're expecting uh, to have another uh, child um, here, uh, Lord willing, in sometime in June. So uh, a growing family. Um, and so they've kind of, uh, especially my wife, she has been through uh, my theological odyssey, as you said, uh, along with me. Uh, she knew me when I was a dispensationalist. Uh, she knew me when I was a particular Baptist, Reformed Baptist for a while. Um, and then um, 
saw as I became a Presbyterian and uh, she's, she actually grew up a confessionally Lutheran. And so uh, we were trying to figure out how this was all going to work. And so we talked about some of these things, even the things that we're going to talk about today, the song of Solomon and uh, how do you interpret scripture, a covenant theology, uh, a Christ in his church. Um, and so uh, these uh, things. And so that's, that's a little bit of, of who I am. Um, I'm uh, grateful for the Lord's work in my life. This wasn't something that I was necessarily seeking out. Uh, I thought I was going to be a professor at the master's uh, university one day and teach dispensational studies um, and uh, continue on studying Hebrew and and Greek and Aramaic and stuff like that. Uh, But the Lord uh, really opened my eyes and it's really changed, changed my life. It's uh, changed uh, the way that I read the scriptures and it has only uh, deepened my love uh, for Christ and for his, his people and have a passion about, uh, teaching people on how to read the scripture so that they don't fall into the same ways that I was taught uh, how to read the scripture. Just as a a side note, I'm very grateful for my professors. I don't, I don't don't say any any of this to, um, to spite them. I'm very grateful for their love for the Lord. They taught me many wonderful things um, in how to look for Christ in the old Testament. I just think when it came to the song of Solomon, unfortunately they uh, missed the mark but i've learned a lot from them and i respect them and their brothers in our lord jesus christ just as as we are though they have a, a different theological bent regarding interpretation of scripture and eschatology and other things like that so that's a little bit uh, obviously we could talk more about that but um sure. yes yeah, so. amen brother um and and just to echo what you're saying you, you're wearing the master's university shirt right now that just goes gotcha. to, goes to show that you're very grateful for the heritage yeah. that the Lord has allowed you to, to transition from recognizing that in God's grace, you're able to learn many wonderful truths from there. And I feel the exact same way, uh, though I'm no longer a dispensationalist. I do praise God for the yeah. privilege that I had to learn from so many wonderful professors and, and also to rub shoulders with the wonderful students that were at the master's university during my time there. Mm-hmm. One of which was you and uh, to, to the listener, I just can't. I can't sing Trace's praise enough just for his his patience with me as, as really a young believer when I got to the Master's University and and his ability to just explain uh, Bible truths to me that were brand new and mm-hmm. God's providence over the years we've we've been able to stay close and, and continue to challenge and encourage one another uh, in our faith and and by the way praise be to God for the the um, the expectation of a second child Trace yeah. that's wonderful here yeah thanks. Well, the topic of our our conversation today, and and as Trace mentioned, uh, we can talk all day about our respective theological journeys. We're both both pretty long-winded in that regard. Mm -hmm. But um, the topic of our conversation today, as we've mentioned a few times, is reading Song of Solomon Christologically. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a very important topic, and and it's really just a lot of times overlooked or kind of dismissed or disregarded. Uh, but it's really an important subject, especially when we think about seeing Christ in the Old Testament and, and doing so in a way that is in continuity with how the church has regarded this issue as well. Yes. So um, just to get us going on, on the direction for the remainder of our discussion today, Trace, uh, perhaps a good place to start on reading the Song of Solomon Christologically would just to kind of go, go through a sketch of the book and an overview of, of what Song of Solomon is and, and what is trying to be conveyed in that portion of Scripture. So would you be willing to provide us with, with just a flyover of the Song of Solomon to get us going? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question, a good place to, to start for us. So uh, this is how I've explained it to, to people um, before. Uh, as, as you mentioned, unfortunately, there are many within the church today uh, in our modern era who have a very misguided, they have a corrupted, a distorted view of how to approach uh, reading this book. And there are others who, like you said, have just completely ignored it or have even in some cases deliberately kept this book uh, from being read publicly. Uh, to the people of God um, in uh, corporate worship. And sadly, and this is something to be greatly mourned uh, over, uh, very few preachers in our day will even attempt uh, to preach uh, from this book. Uh, Actually, I was even advised uh, by some of my uh, seminary professors at the Master's Seminary uh, to refrain from reading it publicly, or that if I were to preach uh, from it, I should only do so to adults to married couples only and thus never on a Sunday morning. And so, as you could imagine, I was absolutely dumbfounded that gospel ministers had such a low view of this book and would seek to withhold it from the people of God. It is, after all, um, a canonical book of Holy Scripture. It has always been received as such. It contains the very oracles of God, Romans 3, verse 2. Uh, This fact alone means that it is a book to be read. It is a book to be expounded upon. Uh, studied uh, by gospel ministers and even lay people in the pew for the edification of Christ's uh, flock. Uh, This book, like all the other 65 of the other books, uh, is part of the whole counsel of God that we have been entrusted with. It is a book that has been once and for all delivered unto us um, as saints, as uh, Jude says in his book. But I believe where people get tripped up and come to the lamentable uh, conclusion that this book should somehow be tucked away or should be concealed for the whole uh, people of God is because they have been taught to interpret it wrongly, even as I was. Basically, they're reading it contrary to how the Spirit has explicitly designed it to be read, reading it outside of the poetic genre that Solomon wrote it. And for example, if you uh, were to read The Lord of the Rings as a historical documentary, uh, you're going to be absolutely lost uh, watching it or reading it. Uh, Be very confused with what J.R.R. Tolkien wrote because he never intended for you to read it that way. He wrote an epic high fantasy novel and expects his readers uh, to read it as such. Uh, Well, we could say the exact same thing about how people have interpreted the Song of Solomon Uh, They have not read it as it has been intended to be read, as a divinely inspired allegory, an allegorical parable of the marriage relationship and spiritual union between the Lord, the beloved, and his bride, his covenant of people. Or to say it differently, this book is from start to finish about the living and spiritual relationship uh, between Christ Christ. In his church, uh, George Burroughs, an American co- uh, gospel minister in the 1800s, who wrote one of the best commentaries on the Song of Solomon to this day, uh, said it best in describing what this book is all about. Uh, he said, it is an allegorical illustration of the operations of love in the bosom of the saint and of the Redeemer. 
Uh, I love that. Uh, that book, uh, the, the book beautifully illustrates it pictures a Christ in the grandest of uh, poetical and metaphorical uh, expressions that you will find in all of scripture and his in, uh, impeccable love that he has for his redeemed a people who he married through the gospel of grace. And it speaks of the brides, a love for him in return. And as her redeemer, a husband and king, uh, while there are yet many times on uh, her end uh, when her love for him wanes or is even barely uh, discernible uh, at times. So all in all, this book depicts uh, the marital love and union between Christ and the soul he is married to. In grace, And so this makes this book a holy of holies to be entered into as it is a book that contains some of the most profound mysteries of the union that we have with the living God through Jesus Christ. For it is, as Solomon says at the very outset, if you go, if you were to open up the Song of Solomon right now, you'll read these words, verse one, chapter one, the song of songs, which mm. is Solomon's. Uh, this is a Hebrew superlative which seeks to convey that it is the best song that has ever been put to pen, the best of the best that has ever hit the printing press or the song market. Uh, how could it be any other song than about the most beautiful thing in all the world, yea, the entire universe, the mutual and unrivaled, unparalleled, unparalleled love story between Christ the beloved and his love? the church. And so this is no ordinary uh, marriage kind of jumping ahead of myself, but um, this is no ordinary marriage being spoken of for none of our earthly marriages to our spouses could be rightly deemed by the spirit of God, the song of songs. If King of Kings in Revelation 19 verse 16 uh, designates the Lord Jesus Christ as the greatest king over all the earthly kings, past, present, and future, and if the title Lord of Lords is the singular designation for Christ and his sovereign lordship over everything, every molecule, molecule, every space, every crevice in the universe, over every beast and person on the earth, then it must be so for the song of songs. It is a song about Christ and the greatest song ever sung, his unparalleled and matchless love for the sinful souls which he laid down his life to redeem, wedding them unto himself uh, forever. Sure, it is told, it is sung, if you will, by uh, Solomon, but as great as he was in, in, in many respects, uh, his glory pales when you put it side by side, uh, Jesus Christ, who he himself, Christ said, I am the greater Solomon. Behold, a greater Solomon is here. Matthew 12, verse 42. Uh, therefore, Solomon by the Spirit is singing of another. Uh, the depictions of the beloved bridegroom throughout this song are simply too high. They're too glorious for Solomon uh, to fit the bill, especially when you consider how far his heart was from the Lord uh, for, the mo for most of his life as the king of Israel, which you can read about in 1 Kings chapter 11 and in other places of Holy Scripture. Christ in Matthew 6 verses 28 through 30 said Solomon's glory was indeed great, but he also said that even the lilies of the field had more glory than he did. Um, and so uh, that's 
uh, just a little bit um, about what this book is about to, to show you that this isn't just my own interpretation uh, to add some other voices um, to this uh, uh, James Durham, who arguably really not arguably wrote the best commentary on the book of Song of Solomon. And if you don't take my word for it, take John Owen's uh, word uh, for it as he uh, endorses this, um, uh, his commentary um, amazingly. And so you should check that out if you've never uh, read that. So James Durham said this about the book. Um, he said the divine mystery intended and set forth here in the song of Solomon is the mutual love and spiritual union and communion that is betwixt or an old word for between a Christ and his church and their mutual carriage towards one another in several conditions and dispensations. And then also, um, obviously, um, I, as I, as you well know, I'm a, a Presbyterian and confessional Presbyterian by uh, conviction. Uh, the Westminster uh, divines uh, shared this uh, view. Um, the Westminster annotations and commentary on the whole book of the Bible. Uh, they wrote this. Look upon it, speaking of the Song of Solomon, as generally it is acknowledged, meaning as it is universally acknowledged in the church, that it that that is not as a history or a prophecy as some conceive it, but as a divine a parable wherein natural and visible visible things allegorize things supernatural, and under the figures of Solomon. And his love is shadowed the true prince of peace and his rich affections uh, to his church mm. and people. And so you, you told me to give a fly through as um, as far as the chapters of what's actually contained in this book. And so I'll seek to do that. It's probably it's very difficult to uh, kind of go chapter by chapter as there's a lot of back and forth between the beloved sure. and the bride and some other voices uh, that we see uh, coming out in this psalm but i'll give you my my best attempt to uh, summarize it just chapter by chapter if you were really? um just to give people a, a help um in order in their own reading of this book so uh, chapter one uh, i've i've uh, called it the church's earnest desire for christ uh, chapter two the excellency of the glories of Christ. Uh, chapter three, the church's further seeking of, of Christ, pursuing a Christ with a deeper fervency and, and zeal. Um, uh, chapter four, um, Christ's expressed love uh, for his church. Chapter five, I just uh, recently, well, not recently, uh, uh, maybe a, a couple months uh, back, I just finished an exposition through uh, chapter a five uh, verses uh, 10 through 16 uh, Christ's altogether loveliness as a beloved uh, to his church mm. uh, chapter six, uh, the church's desperate search uh, for Christ uh, chapter seven, a majestic description of the church's uh, graces coming forth from the mouth of Christ by the spirit of God. And then chapter eight, we have the church's love expressed uh, to Christ. And so this book uh, touches upon some of the most beautiful uh, biblical themes um, in all of Holy Scripture. Uh, here are but a few of them. Uh, it's hard to mention all of them in this book. So let me just limit myself to 10. Um, why, would you, why would you want to study uh, the book of Song of Solomon? Because you see these themes in it. The surpassing love of Christ. A second, uh, union uh, with Christ. And some of the most uh, amazing uh, language and even language that will be used later um, in the New Testament. Uh, third, um, the beauty of the church in light of her union 
uh, with Christ. Uh, four, the unparalleled and matchless beauty of Christ uh, as the beloved of our souls, as his redeemed through the covenant of grace. Uh, fifth, uh, the special graces given to the church by Christ, her head. Six, what it means to truly yearn after Christ, to hunger and thirst uh, for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, seventh, uh, experiential uh, piety in the life and soul of a believer who is captivated by the incomparable and soul satisfying love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, eight, the supremacy of Christ over all things. Uh, Colossians 1 says, Christ is to be preeminent over all things. And we see that wondrously in the Song of Solomon, especially in chapter 5. Uh, my beloved, he is the chiefest among 10,000. Um, uh, ninthly, uh, ninthly, we see uh, the church's deformities and shortcomings um, in many places um, throughout uh, this uh, book. And then we see 10, a uh, tenth, and finally, uh, there's more we could say, but the glorious aspects and realities of the marriage between Christ uh, and the church. And so um, that's my, the best that I can do as far as uh, a fly um, over goes. Um, actually, let me, let me say a couple, a couple more things. Cause this is, um, this is, uh, really important um, mm -hmm. uh, to understand. Um, uh, so we need to understand this book um, allegorically, and we're to read it very similarly to how we read Christ's parables um, in the gospel, um, using the scriptures to, to help us understand their full meaning. When I say allegory, that, that word can kind of get lost in transition. Uh, there's, many, there's many bad examples and types of allegorizing of scripture, especially that the early uh, church fathers engaged in, such as Origen. Um, you know, there's people who say, you know, a David, you know, in the Goliath story, Goliath is the flesh and David and, and, Goliath, and, and David is uh, the spirit of Christ. And they, they, they take these um, allegories to things that are really just plain and easy to understand apart from allegorizing. So when I'm, when I'm using the word allegorizing, I want us to understand allegory but using it under the lens of sola scriptura, using it by interpreting scripture with a scripture. And so when you do that, the song will actually make perfect sense. Um, go figure. Um, I'll say this. Uh, we actually, in the new covenant, can dive even deeper into the glorious mysteries of the truths laid out in this remarkable uh, song than uh, the Old Testament saints uh, were able to do. We have an even greater incentive to read it today, unlike the saints of the old covenant, um, because we have all of God's revelation to open up for us those places under it, which may not have been as easily discernible before the coming of Christ. Or let me say it this way, the best way to be a sound interpreter, a better exegete of the book of Song of Solomon is to know your Bible better mm. as a whole. Uh, I think that's why many of us, and even including myself, we don't understand this book as much as we ought to, uh, because our Bible knowledge is comparatively lower than many of our uh, forefathers in the faith uh, who have gone before us and who are now in, in, in glory, enjoying the very presence of, of Christ. Um, those who love this book so very much, if you, told, if you asked them what is their favorite book, by and large, the Puritans would have said, it is the song. Mm. Solomon. They cherished it 
with all their heart. So Matthew Poole, uh, he commented on the book as, as the whole, and he said this, the song breathes forth the hottest flames of love between Christ and his people, most wow. sweet and comfortable and useful to all that read it. And here's the key. He says, with serious and with Christian eyes. Mm. It has been said uh, that those who walk the closest uh, with Christ in this life are the best commentators of this uh, book because they understand Christ. They understand um, how their relationship, uh, their union with him uh, works. And I truly believe that to be uh, the case. Uh, and so it should come as no surprise to us then uh, that the Puritans, the reformers and, and uh, my uh, covenant of forefathers, the covenanters uh, in whom uh, the uh, RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, descends from. Uh, it's just no wonder they treasured this book uh, so much. And my prayer is that um, you, as the listeners, uh, would also learn to cherish it as um, you uh, study it uh, personally um, for uh, yourself. And so I think uh, that really, uh, there's more we could say, obviously, but sure. I think that kind of gives us a, a whole uh, understanding of the whole as to how, um, you know, I believe we should interpret this book in light of all the scriptures we can get more particularly uh into some of the nuances of that Amen. no it's very helpful trace thank you so much for that overview and i really enjoyed how you emphasize as we kind of segue into our next question how this is christian scripture mm -hmm. the song of solomon it wasn't just something for israel it's not mm -hmm. just something to be tucked away in your bible or in the back of your minds and you kind of pay lip service to that it's yeah it's part of scripture but uh, you know, we're in the new covenant. We, we've got the new Testament. We've yeah. got, we've got more popular parts of the old Testament that we like to read, but yeah. we don't really think about the song of Solomon, but you really emphasized well there, especially citing from the Puritans, how this is Christian scripture. And as such, in light of it being Christian scripture, uh, let's talk a little bit about some specific examples of where we see Christ in the song of Solomon, particularly thinking about reading this book Christologically Trace, sure. where would you take us to a few places that show Christ vividly in this beautiful book of Old Testament Scripture? Sure. Uh, my uh, my quick and easy answer would be Christ is everywhere um, sure. in this, in this uh, book. So if you want a uh, full exposition of this book, you're going to be here for a very uh, long time. And some of you would be OK with that. And some of you guys might have to do some other things uh, right now, but uh, really um, everywhere. And so. Um, I mean, we could go to uh, particular places. Um, I'll just kind of on the top of my head, just kind of fly through some. Uh, we hear of um, uh, effectual calling. Um, one of the uh, the proof texts um, in the Westminster uh, con um, Confession uh, for effectual calling to illustrate that. Uh, we see from uh, Song, of, Song of Solomon 1 verse 4, draw me and we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers and we will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright I love thee. Um, so we also see um, in the descriptions of, of Christ, um, as I mentioned in uh, chapter 5, um, passing over so much, but uh, uh, we have a description of the beloved, um, the bridegroom, and even Jesus uh, picks up on this uh, very clearly as he identifies himself as the bridegroom in John uh, chapter 3 and speaking uh, with uh, about John the Baptist and his ministry, uh, he being the bridegroom. Um, and so um, we see it in uh, Song of Solomon chapter 5, my beloved is white and ruddy. 
uh, the chiefest among 10,000. And it goes into this marvelous uh, 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 depiction of who a Christ is and all of his perfections. Uh, verse 16, his mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. Who is this altogether lovely one? It is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is my beloved and this is my a friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, we even um, uh, see... Uh, we, we even see um, Solomon being used himself in, in, in the, the glories uh, that he had. Um, and so there's this back and forth really between the whole book of a dialogue between uh, Christ and his church. And so as you as you follow through that, it's very important to understand uh, who is uh, speaking um, so that you understand who is being talked about and sure. to apply it uh, correctly. And so. Um, we also um, want to, as you're going through this book and, and trying to unpack some of these um, symbols that are used here, um, to go throughout the whole Bible and look for the places uh, where the Bible um, itself speaks of these things. So whether it's in the prophets, whether it's in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 45. Psalm 45 has kind of been viewed as, as really... Uh, either a continuation or a commentary upon Song of Solomon itself uh, in this superscription. Wow. It is a song of loves. And Psalm 45, you have that same thing, the king and the, and the queen and the virgins and this procession and this marriage. And so uh, go to some of those places in scripture and, and see um, how, where elsewhere these things are spoken about, particularly in the new Testament um, will be very uh, helpful um, to you and even uh, Paul in, in Ephesians chapter five talks about um, speaking of Christ in the church. He says, "This is a great mystery." What he's talking about in marriage relation, he right. says, "And I speak to you that it is about Christ and His church." And so um, this is uh, much of these uh, metaphors and figuratives, uh, figures of speech are uh, further expounded on in the New Testament. So I, I would. Uh, advise uh, if you're going to study this book to get a good bible that has cross references to to men who have really dug into this book and can point you to places where this language is used in scripture so that you can understand what is being uh spiritually uh, presented uh, to you and to your um, to your heart um, by these really deep and profound um uh, metaphors uh, that are used here and so um so and like I said earlier, you know, you need to know your Bible uh, really well uh, here because this language, I mean, Solomon, he wrote 1,005 um, songs. Uh, and uh, this is the best of the best from Solomon, who is the, the wisest man um, that the earth has ever seen, uh, obviously, sure. except the Lord Jesus Christ uh, himself. And so that makes it, you know, some of these things are, are deep and profound, but you, you can... Um, with the help of the spirit, you can dig them out. It just takes a little bit of, of work. Oftentimes we get frustrated or we read something and we just want to give up. But uh, um, one of the best cross-reference systems uh, that I've found uh, in my own personal study, and it's uh, what I use daily in my own preparation, my own reading of scripture, is uh, John Brown of Haddington's uh, cross-references. He has 200,000 uh, cross-references, not just in the Song of Song, but in the whole Bible. And so... Um, that is really helpful um, as you're reading through to see some of the language, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of where these things are uh, spoken. 
sure. um, of. And so really, when you come to read this book, uh, come to read it seeking uh, to, to know Christ more exper experientially in your own uh, soul. And we, and we have good warrant to do this uh, from even Christ himself. He said, search the scriptures uh, for in them, uh, they speak of me and of eternal life. And he even says in Luke 24, verse 27, he really gives us the lens of how we are to read the Old Testament as a whole, which includes, my friend, the Song of Solomon. Right. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Amen. And so he in that he would have shown how the Song of Solomon ultimately um, preached a hymn and testified of him. I know how to owe to be there in Luke 20, uh, when Christ is giving this in the Old Testament, going to all the places uh, systematically. Oh, to just be there to, to sit under the feet of Jesus and, and see all of those um, uh, places. Um, but so I think uh, those are some helpful uh, keys uh, for how we are to read this book. Um, and I mean, there's there's so there's so many um, things that we, we can point out to, but I don't want to I don't want to get lost too much in the weeds. But if you're looking for um, just a, a way uh, to, you know, an example of, of how, you know, I myself would interpret or even preach these, we can talk about this a little bit later um, if we get to it. Um, you know, I have some sermons on sermon audio. Uh, this isn't to endorse me by any way, but to show you how when I preach this book that I am looking for the ways that scripture speaks of these things and to really bring it out and to preach it as a, a Christian, as a Christian. And so pointing people to Jesus uh, Christ. So I've preached um, in a couple of spots uh, here. I haven't done a full exposition of the Song of Solomon yet, but I've preached on Song of Solomon 1-4. That was actually the first sermon I preached at um, in seminary. Uh, people were like, why are you preaching from the Song of Solomon? But um, I, I was able to do, do that. Uh, I've preached from Song of Solomon chapter five. I've preached, um, um, a little bit, uh, from Song of Solomon, uh, chapter two, particularly for communion, um, preparation, uh, before partaking of the sacrament. This book is a wonderful, uh, book, uh, that, uh, will help you, uh, to really see, um, the, the, the beauty and the glory and the wonderfulness of, of a deep communion, personal communion with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by faith. Um, and so um, those are um, really the whole book, my friend, uh, is pointing to Christ. Um, and so that's kind of maybe a kind of a, 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 a cop out uh, answer. But no, that's uh, a great bumper sticker uh, answer. Uh, uh, I think our, our friend and, and mentor, Dr. Stephen Lawson, would be quite proud of you. That might be your master's university and seminary. coming uh, <laughs> out the king of the one-liners. Uh, you know, Trace, it's, it's interesting, uh, as we just think again, uh, of the Christological approach to interpreting the Song of Solomon, which would, yep. would, would be the, the biblical approach to interpreting this portion of Scripture. You know, I, I took a patristic theology course with Michael Haken at uh -huh. RCS Dallas in 2017. And of course, I've, I've been able to read men like Craig Carter and, and Matthew Barrett, who have mm -hmm. really drawn this principle out that, that the, the patristic theologians, some, some of which were, were way too allegorical in their approaches, yes, yeah, but many, many of which, um, I would say the majority of which were very concerned with how do we see Christ mm -hmm. in all of Scripture and there was just there was just an assumption yeah. that, that portions of scripture like Song of Solomon 
should be interpreted with the allegorical approach that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Not, not a cr- not a crazy um, mm-hmm. you know, drawing the most bizarre conclusions imaginable from the text, but a legitimate yeah. use of, of what Dr. Haken called um, either tota scriptura, yeah, all of yeah. scripture. Uh, we might call it the analogy of faith principle mm-hmm. today. Um, but Carter, Craig Carter and Matthew Barrett and, and echoing Haken's concerns there, that they've pointed out that on the on the other side of, of modernism, you know, in our on our post-modernity context, if you will, we're very atomistic in how we interpret just literature as a whole. We, we have a tendency to fragment different parts mm-hmm. yeah. of um, literature, particularly in, in terms of the literal grammatical historical approach to scripture that that actually originated out of modernity mm-hmm. and and that continues again we assume that we we are going to use a literal grammatical historical rigid hermeneutic um, and, and we're going to utilize that on, on a text like song of solomon which was never intended to be read like that whereas mm-hmm. the, the puritans the reformers um, even the medieval and patristic theologians and yep. those who've interpreted this portion of scripture that wasn't even that, that wouldn't have even came across their mind Correct. to see a text like song of solomon Oh, this is just between a husband and a wife, you know. Right. There, was no, there wasn't even a thought yep. that this was the case. Right. Um, so, just to echo you and, and everything that you just said, um, the church, the mm-hmm. church historically has seen this book through a christological lens, and that really mm-hmm. dovetails us into the next uh, question and, and mm-hmm. thought that I'd like to have you tease out for us a bit. Um, how do we respond again with with sure. grace and respect? Yeah. How do we yeah. respond to those? who claim that this is merely a book about a love between a husband yep. and wife, a marriage sure. between husband and wife. Um, and it, maybe you have some, some examples of, of yeah. church history that, that even directly refute that claim. But this sure. is, this is, if you, if you survey most Christians today, mm-hmm. even some of whom are within more of a, a reformed ish context, yep. the primary assumption is that this is just a, a book about love between a husband and a wife. Yeah. And that's the, that's the spirit inspired approach or, or intended meaning yeah. for this book. How, yeah. how, how do we respond to that? Um, and, and again, feel free to elaborate on some sure. of the other themes you've drawn out up to this point. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're getting to the, the main issues here. Um, so uh, yeah. Uh, we, I would point out to them, uh, like you said, graciously and lovely, let's sit down and let's talk about the Song of Solomon. If right. this is what you would say, a, a, a marriage manual for how we are to uh, live uh, with our uh, wives or, or what have you, um, I, I would kindly say that that exegetical model, um, it doesn't hold a water, uh, really. It, it, it forces you into, to uphold some really gross absurdities uh, contrary to the light of nature. If you go the route of understanding this book literally to be about Solomon and his uh, first uh, wife, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, who some people think uh, her name is Shulami because that's the word that is used um, to, uh, for the bride and a couple places here in the Song of Solomon. And so um, if you do that, if you want to go the literal route, then be consistent. This is something that I was always taught and at the master's university is, okay, you know, if we're going to be literal, we got to be consistent. And so, well, if we apply that to the Song of Solomon, we're going to see that it there in places, it directly uh, is contrary to the light of nature and even also plainly revealed truths of God's 
word. And so let me walk you through a couple of reasons why we are not to read this book in a literal carnal sense and that that it would be about um, a way to, to read this book so that I can grow in my marriage or, or what have. There might be some principles that you could learn from that, but is this the way to look at the book? I would argue no. And here's what I would, uh, here's a couple examples to show the, really the absurdities of the literal mm-hmm. view. And these aren't things that I have just uh, found in my own personal study. These are uh, things that have been pointed out from going way back, like you said, the patristics to the reformers, the Puritans. So um, there are many things that don't add up if you're going to take a little approach to this um, book. If you're going to say that this is about historical Solomon and his first wife. And so I'm going to give you a couple examples. The bride calls her beloved a shepherd of the sheep. And he calls himself one too. Uh, We see that in chapter one, verses seven through eight. Yet, if you know anything about Solomon, He was never a literal shepherd like his father David was. Uh, This is just one of the instances that shows that this is not historical, but a spiritual allegory. And there are several more that I want to point out to you. I mentioned Shulami, the name given to the young maiden uh, in this uh, parabolic song is is not intended to portray a Solomon's first wife of many. Remember, uh, Solomon was a polygamist Mm -hmm. as the name... um, is just uh, Shulami. The name is just the feminine form of Solomon's name. Shlomo in Hebrew in uh, Shulami uh, is the feminine form. Uh, Shlomo means to portray that the beloved is the giver of peace, whereas Shulami conveys that she is the receiver of her husband's peace. Um, on top of this, the bride says that she was made the keeper of her vineyard. Uh, Chapter one, verse six, this is too low of a position for a daughter of Pharaoh, the one who was if this was Solomon's real wife and queen queens aren't the ones doing strenuous work of keeping a vineyard, nor did her mother's children make her a a literal keeper of a literal vineyard in the land of Israel. Vineyard often speaks of the estate of the church or one's soul. And we see that in Isaiah chapter five and elsewhere in scripture, even some of the parables that Christ uh, gives. Or what about this throughout the song, the beloved repeatedly multiple times, I think it's like five or six times calls his bride, my sister. Mm. If this were historical, it would be a sin against the moral law or the seventh commandment. And we know that Solomon's first wife was certainly not his sister uh, being Uh, clearly called uh, by the Holy Spirit elsewhere, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, So how are we to understand the husband calling of her my sister? Because then that's what, you know, someone would lovingly respond. Um, um, It is impossible if you were to try to understand this literally, I would say. Uh, But easy, very easy when you understand it allegorically, that in the incarnation, Christ does, in fact, share the human nature of those he died to redeem. And you can see that in Hebrews chapter two, verse 17, he has become one flesh with us through his redemptive work. And so you can rightly say of Christ, if you know him by faith today, he is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Genesis two, the 23 Christ deems us as his brethren through his sanctifying of us by uniting us to himself. Hebrews two, 11 through 12, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them 
brethren, saying, I will declare thy name, O Lord, unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing unto thee. And there their author of Hebrews says that is speaking about Christ. Mm-hmm. And so when we seek to understand this song allegorically uh, in a very similar uh, manner, um, uh, it, when we read it allegorically, these things uh, make uh, sense. But let me point you to some other uh, things because this is this is uh, really important. Uh, throughout the psalm, you have the bride inviting um, others, uh, other virgins, to love and to pursue her husband as their beloved. Surely, this is not a model uh, for us uh, to engage with in in our own marriages to invite other people to pursue and to fall in love with the beloved. And we also see that this book, then, if we take it literally, would promote polygamy. Uh, We have in chapter 8 the younger sister being offered to the king in chapter 8. And so all of the problems in this, we also see that all of the problems, quote unquote, in this marriage, if you're going to, is all the woman's fault. This is not you know, something we want to share. This isn't the approach you want to have with in, you know, in your talks with uh, your, your wife to say, well, it's always your fault because in the Song of Solomon, we see that it's always the woman's fault. And so you're always to blame. Never is the, the, the bridegroom, uh, the beloved, um, attributed with any wrong in this book. And so that just shows how we're not to understand this as in a human love. Now, the, the way that it's presented to us is in terms that you and I can understand sure. uh, earthly terms, uh, you know, to us, you know, uh, sexual intimacy and love between right. a, a husband and a wife is the profoundest expression that we know of uh, to speak of love between uh, Christ and his church. And so those symbols are presented to us, but they're not, um, literally to be understood and then there's times even in the song of solomon chapter five and others where uh, if you understand this to be literal uh you would you would you would think that this this guy's full of himself i mean he's very narcissistic um in the way that he's communicating not only does he he not he doesn't just speak about who his bride attributes he's commending his himself uh, his hair and all of these things and if you were to make that you know, is that what we want to do uh, to be uh, prideful and boastful, boastful of our appearance to our right. wife? No, not at all. Um, we also in uh, chapter three, um, and I believe in chapter five as well, um, the, the bride goes out into the streets and she's beaten up. She's abused by the watchman. This is not the queen going out into the streets by herself. That would never have happened. And so we have to take a different approach to understanding that rather than a literal understanding. Um, and so really, um, and in other times you see the back and forth between the plural and the singular here. I mean, we see this even in what I read in Song of Solomon 1, 4, draw me, draw me, singular, we will run after thee. So what, how do you make sense of this? Well, you can make sense of it as understanding the individual as a member of the body of Christ, or as as a whole, we, the whole corporate uh, right. church, draw me, and we, the, the church as a whole, we will run after thee. But if you do that, if you take it literally, she's confused as to who she is. She's kind of having an existential a crisis if you uh, take it in its literal a sense. And so that's often not accounted for um, because oftentimes like our view is just kind of 
thrown in with origin. Oh, you guys are allegorizing and they don't actually deal with the arguments that have been presented by example, James Durham. If you want to understand how to read the book of Song of Solomon, read his introduction. He calls it a key to opening up the Song of Solomon. He goes through some of these more, more of these absurdities um, if you want to try to take it um, literally. And so uh, really, also, we could say this, if the book is just about um, love between a husband and a wife only, um, human, human love, then it would not be profitable for those who have the special calling uh, to be single in right. this life for the sake of the kingdom of God. Uh, they, they, there would be no benefit uh, for them to read this book, because unless you wanted to tell them, hey, you should read this as, you know, um, God is your beloved and your soul uh, is the bride, which I think that's the right way to read it. But again, that's against the literal understanding that they are presenting. So how does a single person read this book? We know that all scripture isn't breathed out by God and it is profitable. Right. And so this book, um, I think in the Jewish interpretation of it, obviously they believed it to be canonical and uh, they loved this portion of scripture, but I think they even kept it away from people uh, they weren't allowed to read it until men weren't allowed to read it until they turned at least 30 uh, years old so that before that this book is a closed book because it doesn't have anything to say to you because it's only in the context of human love between a husband and a wife and if you read this as a love story really this is a tragedy um, through and through because the bride uh she leaves uh, she speaks of her 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 sin i am black but comely oh you daughters of jerusalem uh she uh is sick of love and really you know i have the husband uh withdraws and so this is not you know the type of marriage manual that we want to be presenting to people as to say hey make your life look like the song of solomon um and so um so to, again, to say it this way, these things are presented to us, uh, to our to our souls um, in marital terminology, things that we are very familiar with. Um, but it does so uh, to show forth the mystical love between Christ uh, and the church. And really, when when you look at if I mean, I, you mentioned the church fathers, and I think we should absolutely uh, consider them and what they have to say regarding this book. If you look at the Second Council of Con. Constantinople, the literal interpretation of this book was regarded to be heretical and it oh, was wow. condemned, actually. Um, uh, churches, the uh, and so you can go back and, and look at those things. And so there were people who were trying to espouse this literal view, and much of them, I would argue, were Pelagians trying to get uh, people away from understanding that this book to be about Christ, because this, this book does speak about uh, the divine uh, nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and his human nature and stuff like that. And so uh, there's a guy, I uh, can't remember his name, uh, Theodore of something. Uh, he was, was, was one of the guys uh, who um, presented this view in the church at the, at, at around this time, the second uh, council of Constantinople flat out condemned this view uh, to be uh, heretical and so um, that's just a little bit but as far as uh, and I think it's important to talk about uh, the different views really there's four views if you want to look at it in the way to interpret the song song we have the literal view and I should and I just showed you a, a couple examples why I don't believe that that is the the route that you want to go in interpreting uh, this book because it causes you to embrace many other things that are not 
according to the word of God. Uh, you have um, what is called the prophetical view. Uh, there were some Puritans who believed that, that this is kind of a book about the church, kind of a history of the church uh, till the second coming of Christ. And so they would kind of read it as, you know, somewhat similar to some, uh, to some, to how some have read Revelation 2 and 3, some of the phases of the church. And so there were some who would kind of Take this. Okay, well, this is a period of where the church was in decline. This is a, a church where you know the Reformation is happening. This is you know, and so on and so forth. So that's called the the prophetic interpretation. The problem is we don't see any of prophetic type of language in this book like we do in apocalyptic literature throughout right. Scripture. So I don't think that the book presents itself in that way. Um, I think we're to. I think it presents itself as an allegory um, from the very get go of of the book and it bears that sense all the way out um and then you have what is called the typological view which is closer to the allegorical view but the problem with this view is typology is always rooted in historical events historical realities and historical experiences of people so when jesus points himself to be a type of jonah three days and three nights in the belly of the whale he was actually jonah was actually in the whale right. three days and three nights and so this wasn't just some parabolical um description uh he's types are always you lose typology if you um you take out the historicity. Same with Adam. Adam can't be a type of Christ if he was not a, a historical a figure. And you could go throughout all, David, all of his sufferings and stuff in the Psalms. Those things were actual things that took place. Now he's describing them in poetical and even messianic uh, terminology um, that will be used later to speak of the Messiah. But those are things that actually happened to him. And so we could say that David in this instance and in this instance is a type of Christ. We don't have that in the book of song of solomon we don't have something in first kings chapter 11 or or throughout the life of solomon uh the, the uh the writers the writer of the old testament uh spent a lot of time talking about solomon you can see that in first kings and and, and chronicles but he did not lay out this relationship between him and his first wife and so that there's more things that we could say, but I don't think this book is type because a lot of people say they want to kind of have both. They want to have, okay, well, this is, yeah, the literal human love between Solomon and his first wife. And then it only typologically points us mm. uh, to Christ. The problem with that is what about the people in the Old Testament? So these experiences of the believer in his heart before uh, the Lord, his beloved, are true and real, even before the coming of Christ. So this speaks right. of our union with Christ for all of God's people. Not This isn't just New Testament. Hey, this is what it's going to be like in the New Testament time. No, this is the experience of all of those who have been justified uh, by faith in Jesus Christ um, and have been given a new heart and who have been uh, married unto the Lord. And so um, that, um, but there are, you know, there's people who, you know, if I preached a sermon allegorically and someone preached it typologically, you might not be able to tell the difference between someone who had took a typological view and an allegorical view. But I think the best way exegetically to look at this book is the allegorical mm -hmm. understanding of the book. And uh, I can point you to some people uh, who um, I don't know if uh, we're going to get to this later. Yeah, on, it's actually but, uh, the next. Actually, okay, good, good. Brother, uh, yeah. you're, you're rolling. Um, right through these questions quite well. And I'm so grateful for your insights as someone who is, who has read the song of Solomon numerous times, but is by no means an expert on this book. I am, mm -hmm. I'm like drinking out of a fire hydrant. Right <laughs> now. I hope and pray that our listeners are as well. This, this, this discussion is going to, at least for me, make me want to go and, and read this yeah. book as yeah. soon as Amen. possible. 
but you mentioned you mentioned Durham. You you've mentioned some mm-hmm. of the Westminster divines as well. Mm-hmm. You've Matthew Poole. Are there any other commentaries and figures from church history specifically who have helped you grow in your reading of Song of Solomon Christo, uh, Christologically and maybe speaking as a pastor? Sure. What are some ways that you've introduced this approach yeah. to your congregation, apart from just preaching it from the pulpit? Sure, and, sure. Um, yeah. I, I have to say this, too, for our Baptist listeners, which is probably the bulk of our audience on, mm-hmm. on, our, on our show. Maybe John, we'll get some more Presbyterians after having me on, so we'll try oh, to yeah. no, widen, widen the audience. Yeah, and we've had, we've had Dr. Lane Tipton on, and we've had some yeah. other uh, Presbyterians on in the past, so we, we love our Presbyterian brethren to death. Um, but I have to mention John Gill. Yes. He, he preached through the yep. Song of Solomon. I think he did like 120 or 150 yep. some odd sermons. So yep. Baptist historically, Spurgeon. Yeah, Spurgeon. We have we do have a history yes. of of reading this book christologically, preaching mm-hmm. it christologically. So yep. this isn't just a Presbyterian approach yes. or a patristic yep. approach. This has roots in Baptist history as well. Yep. So. All that to say, just had to throw a, a Baptist sure. plug in. The yeah, so. yeah, amen. Um, I'm happy I used to be a Baptist myself, and I love you, uh, yes, brother. Yes, sir. Um, and so, yeah, um, that's a that's a great um, that's a great question. And so, um, let me just walk before we get to the commentaries that have helped me, and that mm-hmm. you you, you want to go out and buy these and get a hold of these or look at them online. A lot of the old stuff you can access online these days. It's not the best way to read. It's kind of hard sometimes. But uh, let me just show, kind of walk you through like. Friends, we uh, it, in the allegorical uh, scriptural understanding of the Song of Solomon, we are not in the minority. Uh, um, the the literal view really started to pick up again, if you will. Um, um, I, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but um, with the influence of German lib- liberalism and higher criticism, nineteenth century, um, yeah, nineteenth uh, century, when some of these things are trying, when they're trying to reread, uh, reinterpret the way that the Bible uh, has been interpreted historically, uh, the Old Testament. And so that's when you see some of these newer commentaries. Like it is hard to find a commentary today that doesn't hold to the literal view or thinks that this is some dramatic play and like the Greco Roman sense of it. They like, people just don't understand what to do with it. They think, Oh, the King is a different person than the shepherd. I mean, they try to read it with modern eyes, like you said, modernity. And they just, they don't, they just, it comes out. It, it's, it gets, it gets wacky um, in their understanding. But when it comes to the allegorical interpretation, we are standing on the shoulder of giants um in the faith uh, throughout church history so let me just give you a walkthrough of people and this isn't exhaustive i tried to find as many people as i could who held this view let's start with the early church jerome held to the allegorical view of this book augustine a towering theologian held this view gregory of nyssa uh, Cyril of Alexandria, Cyril of Jerusalem, Hippolytus, uh, Theodoret, uh, Gregory uh, the Great, and there's many, probably many others um, in early uh, church history. Even in the medieval uh, church history, you have Bernard of Clairvaux, who is one who is often quoted by the Puritans, particularly Thomas Watson. If you love Thomas Watson, he quotes Bernard uh, you know, very steadily throughout his works. Uh, and so he preached sermons, I can't remember how many, a sermon, some 80 or 100 sermons on the Song of Solomon and pointing out the, the way that it speaks of, of Christ and the church, uh, the Lord and his beloved. Aquinas as well and um, and the medieval um, medieval church. And then we move more to the Reformation. Uh, we see that the reformers, obviously, they had a lot of other things on their hands. So they weren't pumping out uh, commentaries on the Song of Solomon. You know, we don't have a com- commentary from 
you know, John Calvin or, um, you know, some of the other reformers, unfortunately. Um, but we do know that they held this view because the Geneva Bible, uh, 1599, well, 1560, the first one, and then the 1599 one, which is most commonly uh, used and available today. Those commentators who were uh, that group of commentators that did the commentary for that, they were students of Calvin. And so when you read the commentary on Song of Solomon, it is the allegorical interpretation of the Song of Solomon. Um, and so and, and you also have Beza. Um, so not Calvin, but Beza, who was the president of Geneva, a towering theologian as well. He wrote, um, he, he preached sermons on the Song of Solomon. He actually kind of wrote uh, kind of a, a guide and how to read it as well. And so you have Theodore Beza. He, he was one who held this view. And then when you get to the Puritans, I mean, all the Puritans, essentially, maybe except for some who believed in the prophetic view, like some of the American ones, John Cotton and others, but predominantly the Westminster divines as a whole. There wasn't disagreement. There was disagreement on other things, but not on the Song of Solomon. Um, you have Matthew Poole, uh, his commentary. on. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that when I talk to uh, who you should get to, to help you kind of walk through uh, as sure. you read the uh, Song of Solomon. So you have Poole. You mentioned John, John Gill, uh, Matthew Henry. Uh, Thomas Watson preached many sermons on the Song of Solomon. Uh, Jonathan Edwards has a, essentially like an abridged commentary uh, from his notes that people have compiled. Um, he held to that view. Samuel Rutherford has many sermons on the Song of Solomon. Uh, some of the best sermons I think ever preached on um, Song of Solomon. John Owen, uh, the prince of the Puritans, um, held this view. Uh, James Durham, uh, Thomas Manton, uh, the English uh, Presbyterian, um, has a couple sermons um, from the Song of Solomon. Uh, we have Richard Sibbs as well, uh, so an Anglican. Uh, William Perkins as well, kind of the father of Puritanism. Uh, held this view. You can see that in his book, uh, The Art of Prophesying, uh, Henry Ainsworth, and so on. Let's move to the 17, uh, uh, 1700s. Wilhelm Sabrockel, uh, Dutch uh, reform, Second Reformation, he believed um, in the allegorical interpretation. John Brown of Haddington believed uh, the same. And we move into the 1800s. Spurgeon, well-beloved, the, the prince of preachers, uh, maybe with a little p, as Christ we know is the, the true prince of, of preachers. Spurgeon, uh, George Burroughs, an American uh, Presbyterian. Um, we have uh, Hegstenberg, um, a, a wonderful uh, little treatise on the Song of Solomon. We have Robert Murray McShane, if you're familiar with him, in the 1800s. And we also have missionaries who latched onto this book. Uh, those who were sent out to the ends of the world love this book. Hudson Taylor has a commentary, a little mini commentary on the Song of Solomon as well. And so we are not in the minority wow. um, of friends when it comes to this interpretation. So it's, it's sad to see that many um, in the reform circles um, have abandoned uh, this uh, view when there's so much on it. As far as what you want to get, uh, what have been most helpful to me, you got to get in your hands. And I don't know if it's available in print, but if you can find one or know someone who has it, an old library, James Durham's commentary on the Song of Solomon. I have it uh, here, actually. Um, I don't know if people will be watching the, the video, but Song of Solomon, uh, James Durham, uh, the Geneva series commentary is by far the best work. John Owen's um, says so and so i'm not going to argue with him uh John <laughs> yeah it's kind of hard to argue against him he'll take he'll uh he'll take you uh uh to the woodworks um rutherford sermons a lot of them were preached uh as communion sermons um so 
I, as I was wrestling with how to approach the Song of Solomon, I listened to people read uh, his sermons and I was just amazed and um, convinced all the more of that. And just my heart just soared as I was hearing these uh, him preach from this book to preach Christ to my own soul. And so really the best way to learn is to hear good preaching from sure. the Song of Solomon. There are those who do uh, preach it. Uh, some uh, we're, we're probably not the minor, the majority in our denomination, unfortunately. Though, although I wish that would change, uh, we have uh, several um, ministers in the RPCNA uh, who hold this view and who have preached wonderful uh, sermons and expositions uh, from the Song of Solomon. Praise the Lord. Um, so that's it's encouraging uh, to see. It's some it's one of my favorite books to preach from personally and to hear uh, sermons from uh, Matthew Poole, his commentary. On the whole Bible is a wonderful, he has a little portion in the beginning of it that shows, you know, how to understand this book. Uh, Albert Barnes, the, the American Presbyterian, uh, his commentary in the whole Bible. Uh, John Gill, as you mentioned. Uh, Spurgeon's sermons are fantastic on uh, anything he preaches, but particularly on the Song of Solomon. Uh, he loved the Song of Solomon. It's probably his favorite book, I'd say. Uh, Matthew Henry, uh, Thomas Manton. Uh, his sermons, um, the Geneva Bible, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the, the you know, the Bible with commentaries that come at the bottom, uh, they will mainly hold the literal view. I think John MacArthur's uh, commentary or uh, study Bible does that. Sure. Uh, but uh, really the best ones available are the oldest, well, the oldest one, the Geneva Bible. If you don't have a copy of that, you can access it on um various uh, ways uh, to get to the notes from the Geneva Bible. Also the Reformation Heritage Study Bible has the allegorical interpretation. Uh, so that is a wonderful uh, resource. Um, if you're interested more, um, I know you guys, a lot of your listeners are Baptists, which is fine, uh, but you can go on to purely Presbyterian and there are several articles on the Song of Solomon that even go and in, go more into depth than what I have uh, presented uh, to you um, today. And so really, and George Burroughs as well. So if you're going to get a, get a commentary, James Durham is the way to go uh, for sure. And then listen to sermons. See how men uh, who are of like mind with us in the Reformed tradition have preached uh, this text. Uh, think of Thomas Watson's sermon on Song of Solomon 5, verse 16. Uh, his mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether uh, lovely. And so, you know, really, before you bash our view, you know, really dig into uh, these works and wrestle with it. Right? Whereas a lot of people just dismiss it and just say, well, you guys are just trying to, well, if you take the allegor, the, alle the, the allegorization view, then you're just, you're going to make up whatever you want and there. It's not going to have any meaning at all, which is not the case. Uh, we can show, um, you know, that a lot of these guys, you know, there might be a, a few particulars that, you know, some of them, the men have disagreed, but that's in any, you know, commentary that you, you look at, we are finite human beings. Uh, we don't always come to the correct interpretation as much as sure. we wish. And, and as, as we strive to by the help of God's spirit, but as far as the book as a whole and how to understand uh, the certain uh, doctrines, uh, the exhortations that you can pull out of this book, um, you know, there were, we um, we're not in the minority. And so we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, and so I would say, you know, when we're coming to the Song of Solomon, go to the old works, go back to the sources, even as the Reformation, back ad fontes, go right. back 
uh, to guys who really loved this book and really dove into it and understood it and loved Christ and died for Christ, you know, whereas all these German liberals and rationalists, they didn't die for Christ. And many of them, I, I would say, unfortunately, did not know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ savingly and are in hell at this very moment. Um, and so why would we want to trust them? And I'm not saying they can't be helpful in certain places, but, you know, we want to be spending time where people have sat at the foot of the scriptures and at the, the, the foot of Jesus and have uh, really um, just grown uh, experientially in their walk uh, with, with him. So well, we've been talking with my dear friend, Trace Turner on reading the song of Solomon Christologically. This has been an absolute joy to have this discussion today. Trace, before I let you go, do you have any final words of encouragement sure. words of advice for Christians to become better acquainted with the Song of Solomon and, and really yeah. to be passionate about this precious Old Testament portion? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say pick it up and read it, uh, meditate on it, pray over it, and really uh, seek and yearn uh, for a deeper communion with the Lord Jesus Christ as you uh, read this and, you know, supplement that obviously with, you know, people who have dug into this book. And so um, you read it, uh, look at this, as I said before, look at this book um, as, as uh, tota scriptura, all of scripture kind of, kind of coming down and bearing on, on this book and look for these themes elsewhere. And, and as you do, as you read through your Bible um, more, you will see the ways in which um, this language is really used in all of scripture. So the more that you read the scriptures and are spending time with the Lord, the more and more that this book will be uh, open up to. And for those of you who are gospel ministers, um, um, read this book publicly, it, you know, even if you're not ready to preach on it quite yet, you know, it's kind of like diving into the book of revelation. You know, many of us want to wait until, you know, we're about 30 or 40 years into the ministry before we take up that, uh, tome. And that's another discussion, you know, uh, you know, book that's also, you know, misunderstood as well, but, uh, you know, read publicly. We are to give ourselves to the reading of scripture publicly. And so in your, um, I don't know if you guys read chronologically, uh, through, uh, the Old and New Testament. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament scripture reading. And so if you're allowed to pick those, pick the Song of Solomon and and and, and get people um, to to read it and to 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 know that this is a, a book um, inspired by God and it is good for us and that we um, need it. It's for our instruction in righteousness. And so that that's that's what I that's what I did with my congregation. Um, it just kind of uh, introducing if I was preaching on Ephesians five or on on um, you know, on the love of Christ, you know, a good Old Testament scripture reading. Don't forget about the book of Song of Song. Maybe you can say a couple things about it beforehand and then just read it. And people, um, in my experiences, I don't think I ever heard uh, the book of Song of Solomon read publicly from the scriptures uh, or from the pulpit. Um, to, this day, I've never, to this day, I've never heard it read publicly in a church context. So, that... yeah. Um, and so if that's true for us, how much more for, you know, people you know, who are, who are lay people and been in the church for many years. And they just, this book is just kind of one, Ooh, you know, Oh, this is really difficult. And uh, I don't know what to do with this. And so, you know, help your people along uh, with, with that. And if people have questions, uh, you know, about certain things, then you can, you can help them and start the discussion. So you don't have to feel like you have to start a, a sermon series, although I would love for, you know, you to, to do that um, eventually. Uh, but if you're preaching on communion, uh, preach, uh, take a text, uh, here, um, 
um, from the Song of Solomon and show people uh, the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, um, you know, you might not get everything, you know, this right particularly, but you will not be doing your congregation a disservice uh, by showing forth uh, the way that this book um, points us and shows forth the glories and excellencies of our Redeemer. So uh, that's, I think that's what I have to say um, to you. So read it, pray about it, uh, meditate on it, and really drink deep from this book that really is the holy of holies of the scriptures themselves. So I love that, Trace. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a treat to have you on the Covenant Podcast. For our listeners, you can access Trace's sermons via sermon audio, uh, particularly his sermons on the Song of Solomon. After having mm-hmm. this discussion today, Trace, maybe you need to take up the mantle and do a, a verse-by-verse treatment of this book from start to finish and yeah. just continue Amen. to stand in the long line of, of godly Presbyterian men who've gone before you uh, and, and yeah. even Baptists as well have gone before you and, and sought to expound the riches of Christ from the Song of Solomon. So, brother, I wish you nothing but the best in your your family and your ministry endeavors moving forward. And, and again, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this very important subject today on our show. Yeah, thanks so much, Dewey. Um, you're a blessing to me. It was great seeing you a couple weeks ago. Um, Lord bless you and keep you in your ministry in uh, Kansas. Hope to run into you soon. And thanks again so much for, for having me to talk on this uh, wonderful and glorious subject. Amen. Appreciate it. Amen. And to our listeners, we want to thank you for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. Until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless.